Today's scripture comes from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verse 30 to 34, and verse 46. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. The grass withers and the flowers fade. <laughs> All right, thank you, Grace, for reading. Um, uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, my name is Aaron. Uh, I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. Uh, we've been doing a collection of sermons the past few weeks called Winning Your Thought Wars. And the reason why we've been doing this teaching series is because, I don't, I don't know about you, uh, but oftentimes when it comes to my thoughts, uh, my thoughts kick my butt. And sometimes, uh, for me, my thoughts can take me to very unhealthy and dark places. And if it's true that how you think shapes how you live, and if your thought life is dark and unhealthy, uh, what that means is that your life is going to uh, become dark and unhealthy as well. And I think a part of the reason why uh, our thoughts can be uh, unhealthy and dark is because we live such frenetic and hurried lives. And because we live such hurried lives, uh, we, don't, we haven't learned how to sit alone and to process our thoughts, particularly with God. And so I'll give you an example of this. Uh, in 1901, there was a physician in New York City named uh, Dr. John Harvey Gerdner. And in the book, uh, in his book, New Yorkitis, he says that there is no one in New York that loves the city and its people more than I do. But he says, though, as a physician, however, if there is one unhealthy pattern that I have noticed about New Yorkers, it's that they live a very fast-paced life, they're very busy, they're very hurried, and as a result of that, they live a very edgy life, an edgy personality. And he referred to this fast-paced condition as New Yorkitis. Now, what's so remarkable about his diagnosis is that he wrote this book in 1901, Apparently, even 120 years ago, we were like this. But can you imagine if Dr. Gerdner were alive today and he looked at us, how he would diagnose us? We wouldn't just have New Yorkitis, we would have New Yorkitis on steroids because we have places to go, we have people to see, uh, we have stuff to do. We are busy, even when we're not late, we're walking 100 miles an hour. Now, in contrast to New Yorkitis, 
A Japanese theologian named Kosuke Koyama wrote a book called Three Miles Per Hour God. And in the book, Koyama says that because God has all the time in the world, God is never in a rush. He's never hurried. And coincidentally, by the way, love is never in a hurry. Anxiety, worry, that stuff is always in a hurry. But love is never in a hurry. Compassion, empathy, never in a hurry. And so he says that God walks three miles per hour, which, by the way, is the speed of how we should walk. And what's interesting is that when you look at the Bible, uh, when it comes to our relationship with God, oftentimes the Bible describes our relationship with God as a walk, which is why we use expressions today like, how is your walk with God? Right? It's talking about our relationship with Him. In the Bible, it says that Noah walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Micah 6.8, do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with your God. But oftentimes, instead of walking with God three miles per hour, oftentimes we're out of step with God. And a part of the reason why we're often out of step with God is because of the hurried and frenetic lives that we live. The philosopher at USC, Dallas Willard, was once asked a question, and you know philosophers love questions like this, but Willard was asked a question, what is the one thing that I must do with my life? I'm curious how you would answer that question if someone asks you, what is the one thing I must do with my life? And you know how Dallas Willard responded? He said, the one thing that you must do with your life is to ruthlessly, not gently, but ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. On a day-to-day basis, the biggest threat for you faithfully following Jesus, not just following Jesus, but faithfully following Jesus, the biggest threat in your life, I believe, is not hedonism, It's not materialism or nihilism. I believe that the biggest threat to you faithfully following Jesus on an ordinary Monday morning is distraction and hurry. It's not hedonism, materialism, or any of those uh, other things. And this is why Dallas Willard says that if there is one word that he could use to describe Jesus, it would be the word relaxed. And so the question is, for us. How do we learn how to relax in Jesus in this crazy city that we live in that is overworked, fast-paced, hurried, overly ambitious? How do we learn to faithfully follow Jesus uh, in this city that we live in? And probably what it's going to take is for us to live our lives counter-culturally from the way that our city lives. So if you pull up Romans uh, chapter 12, It says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, which is hurried and rushed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so what Paul is saying here is that if you want to really renew your mind, 
you have to live a non-conformist lifestyle. You can't do what everyone else uh, is doing. And so if our church were in the burbs, you know what I would say in terms of how to live counterculturally? Where, you know, in the burbs you idolize convenience, comfort, the man cave, your kids. If we were in the burbs, I would say to our church in the burbs, you have to get out of your man cave, do something, serve the poor, go overseas on mission. Like you have to do something, get out there. Right? Don't just stay at home and idolize your kids and your family. But our church is a church in this city. And our problem isn't that we're not getting out there. Our problem is the exact opposite. We don't know how to practice silence in the midst of the noise. We don't know how to practice stillness in the midst of the hurriedness and busyness that we experience. We don't know how to practice solitude in the midst of all the crowds. And so if we're going to follow Jesus in our city, we have to learn how to slow down and pump the brakes and walk with God three miles per hour. I once saw this on Twitter. I don't know who said this, but this person wrote this. I saw a guy at Starbucks today. No iPhone, no tablet, no laptop. He just sat there drinking coffee like a psychopath. And as I think about this and what it means to live a nonconformist life in order to follow Jesus, maybe this person isn't the crazy one. Maybe the real psychopaths are the ones that are on their phone, staring at their phones all day. Maybe they're the crazy ones, and the sober-minded, wise person is the person that has learned the master, mastered the art of not staring at his phone or her phone, but staring at walls and being in silence uh, and stillness with our thoughts uh, and with God. As we take a look at this text, uh, we see that Jesus is a very busy person and so are his followers. But in the midst of the busyness, Jesus is never hurried. And to put Mark chapter six into a bit more context, Jesus here um, hand selects 12 people to form his entourage and to be his uh, ragtag you know, followers. And he gives his 12 disciples this extraordinary power to heal the sick and to do all these different miracles. And because of this power, um, all of these people start to flock to them, wanting their attention and making demands of them. And seemingly overnight, these 12 disciples become as popular as like Mr. Beast or BTS just walking the streets of New York. Everyone is flocking towards them. And this is what we read in verse 30 and 31. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. Now, maybe it's because I love food, but I have never been so busy that I did not have a time, you know, a chance to eat. But apparently, there were so many demands being placed on these disciples because of this power that they now had. They didn't even have an opportunity to eat. Everyone was screaming for their attention. And as modern people, we can somewhat relate with this idea of busyness, uh, can't we? Typically, whenever someone asks you the question, how's it going? What is our knee-jerk 
reaction or response. How's it going? Um, busy, right? We are the most overworked people in America. Even, even those that are unemployed in our city, they are busy. And if I can pick on pastors for a moment, pastors are notoriously known in study after study along with doctors and lawyers for being the worst when it comes to our busyness. And as a result of that, we sort of look like this next image where because we are so busy, we don't wake up feeling refreshed every single morning, uh, but we wake up feeling exhausted day after day after day. The biggest threat, therefore, for us following Jesus today is not hedonism or materialism. The biggest threat in your life is distraction and hurry, which is why the New York Times referred to atheism as the new religion for the busy. So the question then is, why do we live such busy lives? Well, I don't know about you, but personally for me, when I take a look at my GCAL for the week, and I see all these different colors and all these different blocks, I feel so important, you know? There's something very satisfying of looking at a full week ahead, you know? I feel so special and so important. There's some kind of self-justification that comes when I look at my GCAL. But just because we live busy lives, it doesn't mean that we're busy living the right kind of life. In fact, we can actually be living uh, the wrong kind of life. And I'll give you an example of this. Let's do a quick philosophical thought experiment for a moment, okay? I want you to imagine for a moment, someone comes up to you and they say, hey, can we get coffee at Starbucks for an hour? Now you're busy, so you would want to know the purpose for that one hour so that person doesn't waste your time because your time is life. This is why we use expressions like life time. Time is life. So you would want to know the purpose for that one hour and rightfully so. Now I want you to extend that one hour of your life that you want a purpose for, extend that one hour, elongate it to your whole life. If you want to know the purpose of that one hour of your life, shouldn't you want to know the purpose of your whole life as well? You should, right? And so the question now is, what is the purpose of my whole life? Is it the American dream, fall in love and get married and have kids? Is it to love God and love neighbor? What is the purpose of my whole life? Because if I'm busy, but I'm not busy doing the right things, the purpose of my life, then I'm not actually busy doing the right things. And if I'm busy doing the wrong things, your busyness can actually be a form of laziness as well. When you're busy doing the wrong things, you're actually missing the mark for your life. And by the way, sin, when it's translated, it literally means you've missed the mark. Like a, like a, like a bow and arrow, you've missed the mark. You've missed the point of, of your life. And our busyness, especially if it's a wrong kind of busyness, not only comes with a mental cost, but it can also come with a spiritual relational cost as well. So John Mark Homer, in his very seminal book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which was the inspiration for much of today's sermon, Comer writes this. Corey Tamboom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. 
There's truth in that. Both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your own soul. So oftentimes when we think about stewarding stuff, we think about stewarding our talents, we think about stewarding our resources, our money, but we don't often think about stewarding our attention. And if you talk to economists today, they will say that we have already, a long time ago, shifted from a material-based economy to an attention-based economy, where everything is screaming for your attention. And here's the thing, when we live very hurried lives, our attention is not on God, but it's on other things besides Him. And as a result of that, there is a relationship damage that is done with our relationship with God. Okay? So if there's one thing that I want you to remember from today's sermon, uh, it's what I'm about to say right now. So perk up your ears for, for this moment, okay? Um, if our attention is not on God because there are so many things grabbing our attention and making demands of us, typically, typically what God will do is that he will remove that distraction from you to get your attention. And sometimes that distraction is your job that you idolize. Sometimes that distraction is a romantic relationship. Some, it's whatever idol that you hold so dear that is taking your attention away from God. He will remove it. And usually when he removes that thing that we hold dear and that thing is ripped apart from us, it makes us very sad because we hold it very dear. And, and this is where in a lot of our counseling, particularly with sleepy Christians, usually at some point in the conversation, this comes out. I don't know why God would do this to me. Like, why would he do this to me? And if they're ready to hear it, if they're at a place where they're ready to hear it, sometimes I will say, that's why he did it. And then the question is, wait, he did what? The fact that you said, why would God do this? This is the first time you've acknowledged him in six months. This is the first time he finally has your attention. This is the first time you've finally been alone with your thoughts and thought about him. God doesn't care about what you do. He cares about who you are. You are not a human doing, you are a human being. And he wants to be with you. He doesn't care about all the stuff you do which is why he will remove that thing so that you can finally be alone with him. And now he has your attention. And now you're not living a hurried life. And as cheesy as it sounds, when you understand like God's heart in doing this, you understand that love is not spelled L-O-V-E, but love really is spelled T-I-M-E. And he wants time with you. And so my question to each and every one of us today is, is how hurried has your life been lately? How busy has your life been lately? Are you stewarding your attention wisely and on him, or are you giving it to the wrong things? In verse 31 and 32, seeing that the disciples are very busy, Jesus says this to them, 
Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Now, for those of you who are sports fans, basketball fans, baseball fans, you might be familiar with the terminology load management. And the idea of load management is that the bigger load you carry, the more rest you need. Jesus is the first coach or rabbi to implement load management with his 12-man roster. Seeing the load that they are carrying, he is implementing rest and quiet in their life. Now, it's very hard for us, though, to slow down, isn't it? Because we're workaholics, we're dopamine addicts. Uh, there's something very excruciating about slowing down because we don't feel very productive and it can kind of come across very inefficient with the way that we're using our time. Peter Kraft, a philosopher at Boston College, says this, if you can't take time to do nothing, you're a slave to doing. Doing nothing is a radical, revolutionary act. It frees you from the universal slavery of our age, slavery to the clock. The clock measures doing, but not our being. And this is why repeatedly over and over again, Jesus says, you have to take up your cross and follow me. And what is the cross a symbol of? Sacrifice. Now, what does it look like as modern New Yorkers to take up our cross and follow him? It's not just sacrificing money and your talents. The biggest cross in our life is our time. We don't want to sacrifice our time. And when you don't want to sacrifice your time, people and God come across like an inconvenience for your busy life. There is no greater cross that we can give up and sacrifice than our time. Love is never in a hurry. But oftentimes, even when we read the Bible, we speed read it. And our quiet time is not even a quiet time. It's a fast-paced time where we hurry through it. But love is never in a hurry. And therefore, we should not, not be in a hurry as well. Alan Noble, in his book, Disruptive Witness, says, the person I'm most uncomfortable being alone with is myself. And that's okay because I've become very good at avoiding myself. For example, if I get stuck alone on an elevator and I start to feel that anxiety, the dread of having to examine my life even for a minute, I just take out my phone and poof, it's gone. Or if I sense that I need to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with myself about sin or doubt or fear, all of a sudden, I remember that it's my night to do the dishes and I can't do the dishes without listening to a podcast. Self-avoidance is probably my most advanced skill set. I've developed it over the years in response to the burden of being alone, which can bring up so many unsettling truths. Of course, I have plenty of help from the rest of society. I'm always being encouraged to read something, to do something, to watch something, or to buy something new. It's an unspoken but mutually agreed upon truth for modern people that being alone with our thoughts is disturbing. Years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, just had a newborn, and uh, when you have a newborn, you have to feed the newborn throughout, all throughout the night. And she was telling me that the scariest part of her day is 2 a.m. when it's totally dark outside. Everyone's sleeping. 
you could hear a pin drop and she's all by herself alone with her thoughts, feeding the baby. And so she says that I have to bring my phone with me. Otherwise, 2 a.m. is too scary for me. But being alone with our thoughts is some, one of the best things that we can do to live a non-hurried life. I don't know if you've noticed this, but at the halftime mark of our service, during our prayer of confession, when we confess our sins, we play no music on purpose. Because for you, how we want to shepherd you, inform you, we want to create one pocket of space and time in your week, your busy, noisy week, where there is total silence, where you can be alone with your thoughts and alone with God. That's why there's no music that is played. We intentionally do that because we want to serve you with one moment of silence uh, throughout the week. And what we see in the life of Jesus is that as busy as he was, he always found a time and a space to be quiet, particularly to pray, which is why we read in verse 33, 34, and 46, but many who saw them, that is the disciples leaving, recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without his shepherd. So he began teaching them many things after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. I love these verses because as busy as Jesus was, he was never too busy for people. As Koyama would say, love is never in a hurry. He never walks by people. Compassion and empathy never in a hurry. He was walking three miles per hour. It's interesting to me that when you read 1 Corinthians 13, which is famously dubbed the love chapter, it says things like love is uh, not easily angered, love keeps no record of wrongs. But what is the first description of love in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. It's not hurried. It's not fast-paced. It walks three miles per hour. But when you live a very fast-paced life, you breeze by people because they're inconvenient, and you breeze by God uh, as well. There's a fascinating story in John's account about a man named Lazarus. And Lazarus is sick and about to die. And his two sisters, loving their brother, are like, we got to find Jesus. So they go to the next town over to find Jesus, and they say, hurry, come quickly, our brother Lazarus is sick and about to die. And what's so interesting about Jesus' response is he doesn't hurry. He doesn't go to heal Lazarus. He actually stays in that town for two more days. And by the time he walks to the town or the city that Lazarus lives in, Lazarus had already been dead for four days. And you know what the sisters say to Jesus? They say, Rabbi, if only you had hurried, if only you had come quicker, our brother Lazarus would not have died. But as I said before, love is never in a hurry. And the reason why Jesus was not in a hurry is because he controlled all things. And he used this opportunity as an opportunity to raise Lazarus from the dead, which, by the way, is a foreshadowing of he himself rising again from the dead as well. Jesus was never hurried, but he was always in control. But make no mistake, just because he wasn't hurried, it doesn't mean that he wasn't busy. 
Because every day that Jesus lived, he was busy doing his father's work. He was busy living the perfect life. He was busy working for our salvation. He was busy dying on a cross. He was uh, busy reconciling us back to God. He was busy. And the reason why he was busy was because he wanted to love us, forgive our sins, and to rise again from the dead. And the more you place your identity in the finished work of Jesus instead of your own works, you can relax. The reason why we live hurried lives is because we want to justify our own existence in front of everyone else. I didn't say this in the first service, but maybe I should have. But I've, I was not feeling confident about today's sermon. It was a busy week. And so I had two choices. I could work and work and work, or I could take my own advice and just rest, knowing that it might not be an A-plus sermon. Maybe it'll be a C sermon, but am I going to be okay with that? Or is my identity constructed upon the feedback that you give me? But it's not, right? You're not going to remember the sermon tomorrow anyway, right? <laughs> our identity is not based upon our work. When you place your identity in His work, you can rest. And you don't have to live such a hurried life. And don't you want that? Aren't you tired and exhausted from the motor that's constantly turning? And you can rest and relax uh, in him. So how can we learn to walk three miles per hour on a consistent basis instead of suffering from New York-itis? I think one of the best ways of slamming on the brakes is to do what Jesus did. He was never too busy for people, but he was also never too busy to pray, which is what he does after ministering to all the people. Learning to pray may not offer you a less busy life, but I promise you, it will offer you a less busy mind and a less busy heart. Jesus was busy, but he was never too busy for prayer. And prayer, by the way, is not just a monologue. It is a dialogue. Uh, if there's any insights that come from my sermons anyway, it's not because I read a commentary from a scholar. It was usually baked in prayer. Where I, pray, I didn't hear God's voice audibly, but I did feel like he was convicting my mind and my heart. Most of any insight for me personally is usually baked uh, in prayer. There's a reason why the word silent and the word listen have the same letters, albeit rearranged. There's something where we can hear God the more we are silent. Psalm 4610 says, be still and know that I am God. Not be hurried and know that I am God, but be still and know that I am God. Or as the Bishop N.T. Wright would say, it is only when we slow down our lives that we can finally catch up to God. And so what is one thing that you can do when you wake up tomorrow morning? You can do what my favorite attorney does, uh, the extraordinary attorney Wu, who often lived a very hurried life. And whenever she was hurried, her boss would grab her and say, you have to, whoa, whoa. And she was like, whoa, whoa? No, he was like, no, 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 no. You have to, whoa, whoa. 
And she was like, oh, whoa. You have to learn how to relax in him. He is in control. He was in control of Lazarus' destiny. He's in control of your destiny. He himself does not walk in a hurry. So how about we not outwalk him and learn to walk with him three miles per hour? What can you do today to switch from the left lane, the fast lane, and go to the right lane, the slow lane, the lane of love? Now, you're going to feel that tug to go back to the left lane, performance-driven life, right? But that's not who you are anymore. What can you do to go back to the right lane? One practical thing, again, is prayer. And I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did when he says that he liked to make his day a bookend where he begins with silence where God has the first word of the day and he ends with silence where God has the last word of the day. But what can you personally do to slam on the brakes and slow down your life to be with him? Let me close with one final quote from John Ortberg who wrote the foreword to the ruthless elimination of hurry, and Ortberg writes this, to choose to live an unhurried life in our day is somewhat like taking a vow of poverty in earlier centuries. It is scary, it is an act of faith, but there are deeper riches on the other side. I think for a lot of us, we would rather take a vow of poverty than to be impoverished of our distractions. There is nothing more radical and revolutionary than you, that you can do today than to live an unhurried life and to walk with God three miles per hour. And the more you do that, the less hurried life you live, the healthier your thoughts will be, particularly when your attention is back on God. Let's pray together. Lord, there are so many good things about New York City culture. So many great things. The, the ambition, the drive, um, the, the talent level in the city is crazy. But it's also a double-edged sword because it makes so many demands of us. More hours, more hurry, more demands. And so as we try to figure out what it looks like to faithfully follow you in our city today, Help us not to conform to the bad patterns of our city, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I think one practical thing that we can do is to learn to walk with you three miles per hour. Help us, God, to do that. In your name I pray, amen.